You know, some people get uncomfortable in silence. I feel very comfortable in silence. I really do. Like, there's sometimes when the Spirit of the Lord's there, and we have to start service, and it's my time to preach, and I'm thinking, Lord, why do I have to be the one to break this silence? Like, I could sit here and be okay with it. <laughs> it's the beauty of the presence of the Lord. When He's really moving upon His people, you can tell. You've heard me say it a dozen times, and I'm not over-exaggerating or false humility. I really don't feel super spiritual. I don't. I feel like an ordinary man. I feel like an ordinary man, but I've been blessed with the revelation of someone who's so much greater than me. And because he's so much greater than me, when I yielded to his greatness, he said that I can make you great as well in me. I mean, I feel great. I feel good. But I never feel like I'm significant. It's not false humility. I never boast in my own significance. I believe that I am significant. But without Christ, I would have died in my sins and ended up in a lake of fire for all eternity. And all the significance that I thought I would have had would have been burned with me. Because every man's work will be tried by fire, the Scripture says. And whatever is built on anything other than the Lord, it won't last. <laughs> it won't last. I want to build a foundation, not only in my life, not only in my kids' lives, but also in your guys's. A foundation that stands true. And I believe that that's what this ministry wants to do. This is a ministry of integrity. I don't say that because I'm part of it. I say it because it's true. That's a ministry of integrity. Because there's a scripture that says that he's able to save those to the uttermost who comes unto him. There's another scripture that says he's able to subdue all things unto himself. Then it says whether things on earth or whether things in heaven. So whatever's in earth, whatever's on heaven, Christ is able to subdue it unto himself. The only thing that God won't override is our will. A man can choose to die and go to hell if he wants to. God will never override our will. Even though he went through such extremes to make sure none of us go there, yet still men will choose to because they want to live life without God. Because somewhere in their mind, they've been deceived into believing that it's better to just live life however you want and face the consequences in the end. It's so much deception. Because really, in Christ is everything that we ever wanted. Outside of Christ, there's nothing. I've been there. You guys have been there. We put all our experiences together. We search probably everywhere there is. And here we all are here corporately because we've only found satisfaction in one place. I've searched probably the end of every bottle. I've searched so much different stuff in my life. But my searching stopped when I found what I was looking for. And I found it in the person of Jesus. Because in Christ, my life actually took on meaning. I died to myself, and I found that by dying to myself, there was real life there because I became alive unto God. The dead man that I wanted to live for, he was always dying. <laughs> he was always in a state of decay. Anything that that old man touched, he destroyed it because of the nature that he had. 
But now I believe that as we've been born again, everything that we touch, even though it's been destroyed or looks destroyed, we actually can bring it back to its original value because the life of God lives inside of us. We become ministers of His grace. We become dispensers, like pop machines, that literally we put the money in so somebody else can enjoy the drink. We put the time, the energy, the effort in. Because salvation is free, but knowing Him, it costs you stuff. (laughs) It costs time. I was having a conversation with my cousin Jesse, and I talked to my cousin Jamie early in the week, and Jamie was like, he said, I'm ready for the next thing that the Lord has for all of us. He said, I'm just so ready to walk into that fullness. And I was thinking about that, and for the first time in my life, I said, bud, this sounds weird, but for the first time in my life, I don't feel ready. I don't feel ready. Why is that? I really don't know. I was telling my cousin Jesse when I was recounting the story to him that I honestly believe this next chapter of what the Lord is going to do is going to take that time of intimacy which is required to know someone. To know someone or something in fullness. Anything. If you want to learn a new language, it's going to take commitment, time, energy, and effort. The difference with God is that when we give Him our time, He gives us the energy and then gives us the ability, the effort, to do those things. But it's going to take a commitment on our end to seeking Him. Because He says that when you search for Me, we don't have to search for Him as in groveling, as in being beggars. But there is something that when we search for Him with our whole heart, we will find Him. And the thing is, is that in our search, we realize that He's been there the whole time. There's a proverb that says, it's to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. And you think that God has concealed something from you, but He's actually concealed something for you. Because it's in the pursuit of the promise or the person that we discover our own identity or significance. Where we find ourselves at the end of our pursuit. And we find ourselves transformed into the same image as we're beholding Him. God doesn't hide Himself from people. He hides Himself for people. Did God ever hide Himself? Of course He did. He did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Christ is hidden. In the New Testament, He's revealed. What is so glorious about going and reading the Old Testament? Because you see what was hidden for us that now has been revealed in our generation. People put the Old Covenant and the Old Testament as one. (laughs) You have to cut out the whole book of Genesis if you do that. You have to forget about Abraham, Joseph. You have to forget about all that. Noah, Adam, if you lump them all together. Covenant was introduced in the Old Testament, but so was faith. And the just shall live by faith. Our father Abraham, he appears, I think it's in Genesis chapter 12. So the Old Covenant is a covenant that passed away only because a new one took its place. 
where their covenant was works. The base for everything was works. Okay, you want godliness? It's going to be works. So you take godliness, you put it in a blender with works, and then there goes your desire. Our base in the new covenant is actually grace. If you take faith and you put it with grace, you mix it together, something beautiful comes out. It's the base for everything in our Christian experience. Without grace, you can't have salvation. Without grace, you can't have faith. Without grace, you can't even be heard from God. Because grace is given to us through a person, which is Jesus. Grace also is a ministry. There is a ministry of grace. There is a ministry of God's ability to affect your heart, your mind, your soulish realm. There's a ministry of that. But it's much more than just a ministry. Grace is found in a person. And when we have the person as the base or the main substance in everything that we experience in our Christian experience, then everything that we do in that, as grace being the base, will be successful in our life, ministry, marriage, friendships, regardless of what it is, because grace is consistent. Its consistency is always the same. It never fluctuates. It never changes. It remains the same. Because grace will show you mercy if you just lied, but the same grace will show you mercy if you just killed somebody. Why? Because it's consistent. Grace extends mercy in the place of judgment or wrath because grace is the foundation to our Christian experience. We've been saved by grace through faith. You can't access anything in God apart from grace, and grace is undeserved, unearned favor of God. I don't deserve anything that I got, but somebody else earned it for me so that I can stand in a position as righteous even though I woke up this morning not feeling too righteous. My righteousness is intact because Jesus is the one who bought the suit for me to wear. He's also the one who's responsible to keep it clean. We've been deceived in Christianity to think that it's our job to clean our suit. So if you spill something on your suit, that's a very expensive suit. It cost the very Son of God for you to wear it and you spilled something on it. You need to get that taken care of right away because if you don't, he's going to be mad because that suit cost his son. Our righteousness cost Jesus his, his life. No, God doesn't get mad. When we spill something on our suit because we were being clumsy and not paying attention, <laughs> it's like the girls. God doesn't have to get us a new suit. All he has to do is just wipe away what was already just spilt there. And he wipes it away with the blood of Jesus. The scripture says that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. And like I've said a whole bunch of times, if I just did a dead work before I came into church, guess what? The blood of Jesus is there and I'm still able to serve God because he cleansed my conscience which means that I have no residue of condemnation from something that I or something you did even two hours ago. Why? Because our minds are renewed to the reality of the truth that we are in Christ and He is in me. My spirit has been sealed by the Holy Spirit in all of eternity. 
and all of the universe. Can you defile the Holy Spirit? Do you have a scripture that says that you can defile the Holy Spirit? No. There's no scriptural basis that you can defile the very Spirit of God. It's the Spirit that you've been sealed with. So when Jesus touches a leopard, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, according to the law, the leopard is healed. Well, if he couldn't do it to Jesus, and Jesus said, it's better for you that I go, because if I don't go, he can't come. Did Jesus not operate, live, move, have his being by the Spirit of God? Yeah, he did. Everything Jesus did was direction from the Spirit. If they couldn't defile Jesus because Jesus was filled with the Spirit that kept him from being defiled, then how can we be defiled? Because we can't defile the Holy Spirit, and we've been sealed with that Spirit. That's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, which is promised to quicken our mortal bodies, to make them alive. It's not through pressure that we put on ourselves in order to perform, in order to get the Spirit to release something. It's the pressure that we put on the Word, which works in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, that releases something inside of us. Because every revelation we receive brings us to a higher level. Because it releases more of the plans, the will, and purposes of God over our life for us to then walk in. I was listening to Eric Johnson preach earlier in the week, and he was preaching on Jesus spitting on the ground, making mud, and putting it in the blind man's eyes, and then telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I was listening to this message, and I blanked out. This is why I listen to messages more than once, because there's times where someone's preaching, and I pick up revelation of what God's saying, then I start communicating with God, and I might be looking at you, but I'm drawing blanks as far as our conversation, because now I'm in fellowship with God. And I'm listening to Pastor Eric Johnson preach, and he's talking about this story of Jesus making mud and spitting on the ground. And I was thinking, Lord, why in the world? That's like the strangest story that I can recall. Like, why would you spit on the ground and make mud and then put it on the man's eyes? There's purpose behind everything that you do. All of a sudden it dawned on me where the Lord is talking to Adam, and he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. And then I remembered of the story of Moses' sister where he spit in her face and she was cursed with leprosy. Because when you spit on something in the Old Testament, you proclaimed a curse. When I put it all together, the ground was cursed for Adam's sake. Jesus cursed the ground that was cursed by spitting on it, then took what he just cursed with spit, put it on the man's eyes and told him to go wash. And I was telling Heather, that's amazing because Jesus cursed the curse when he spit on the ground. And then he put what he just cursed on the man's eyes and it repaired what the fall actually took away from him. Because they're having a conversation just previous to that and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It was because of the curse that was in the earth that something just went wrong. Jesus spit on the ground, made mud, he cursed the curse. The guy listens to the words of Jesus and comes back seeing. It's an amazing story. 
Because then all the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin get in an uproar. They want to bring this man into questioning in the book of John. They said, how is it that you received your sight? He tells them the exact same story. They say that we know this man is a sinner. And the guy who just received his sight from Jesus says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that no one who was born blind has had their eyes open. And he said, I know that God doesn't hear sinners. So they asked him again, tell us again. And he said, why, will you be his disciples too? <laughs> and then they said, we're Moses' disciples. As for this man, we don't even know where he's from. And they kicked him out of the synagogue. They said, how dare you lecture us? You were all together born in sin. <laughs> oh. But there's something about when Jesus shows up in your life that really does make religious people mad. They want the experience with God that you have, but they haven't put the time through intimacy and in knowing him. And he makes himself so approachable because he made himself approachable in the person of his son. That's why it says in Romans chapter 5, why we were yet sinners without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I was without strength in my life. But in due time, Christ died for me and for you when we were ungodly. Like I said, we all visited the bottom of something, <laughs> whether it was bottles, relationships, regardless of what it was, we all visited there and the majority of us lived there. In an ungodly state, God would commend his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, before we ever acknowledged him, before we ever thought of him, before we ever said good morning, Lord, when we woke up, when we used to wake up and use his name for blasphemy and cuss words, he died for us then. Because he didn't die for righteous people because there was none righteous when Jesus came. No, not one. Isaiah prophesied it and spoke it into the future that all our righteousness has become as filthy rags. None are righteous. But now because of Christ, all in Christ are righteous. It's the garment of praise that we worship our Father in. That when we come together in worship, we have a garment of praise. What do you think that is? That's righteousness. That's our righteousness that actually causes joy unspeakable that is full of glory to spring forth from us. It's a triumphant sound in the earth because God himself did it and we can't take credit for it, but we get to take part in it. And we're all of us are so unworthy. We are. We're unworthy in ourselves before Christ. But in Christ, our worthiness is beyond comprehension because our suit costs the blood of Jesus to purchase our right standing with the Father. So that when we come before God, I don't care what you look like through the week, when you appear before the presence of God, you have the glorious suit of righteousness clothing you. And if you've seen yourself in the spirit, it would literally transform your mind because there's nothing like that suit in all the universe. It only belongs to people who have been bought and purchased by the blood of the lamb. You are unique in this generation. 
When the Father looks at you, you wear that suit of righteousness. And we're supposed to boast in His goodness that my Father bought me this suit when I was living in trash. And He said, I don't want you living in trash anymore. Man, God has such a pattern of design for our lives. And His goodness is beyond understanding. All things become possible to him who believes. And now we find that we're in Christ. We believe and all things are possible to us. Yesterday's restrictions don't have to restrict the moving of what God wants to do in our tomorrow. We can be liberated in our today to experience fullness tomorrow. We have the opportunity to step in it right now because it's revealed who we are. And we have the knowledge and understanding of who He is. And it's in Him, like I said before, that we find who we are. I'm at peace with myself now. Because I realize that I'm made in the likeness and the image of God. A man comes to Jesus and he says, Good Master. And Jesus stops him before he can even finish his sentence. And he said, Why do you call me good? There's only one good but God. And what's amazing is that when God created man, He said it is very good. He called man good. A man tried to call Jesus good, and Jesus said there's none good but God, taking him back to the garden, we find that man is made in the image of God. Jesus brought us back to our identity. Now we're good because we're co-heirs with Christ. We're laborers dispensers of this grace again grace is the basis for everything in our christian experience everything you can't get to god apart from grace you can't obtain righteousness apart from grace you can't even operate in faith faith works by love but you can't experience love without grace because it's not that we first love god but that he first loved us that's the picture of grace Everything that we ever need to access in Christ is going to be found through grace because Christ equals grace. He is the demonstration of the grace, the ability, the love, the faith, the belief system that God had when he sent a man to redeem man, when he himself would become that man to redeem all of humanity. If we could take a picture of ourselves in the spirit, I guarantee you that you guys are giants. And you would see all your problems, all your circumstances as very, very small because you guys have a look in the Spirit and it doesn't look like anything else that God has ever created. Because when He created our born-again spirits, again, He brought us back to the very image and nature and design and pattern that God always intended humanity to walk in when he said that it's good. He says that you're good today. He says that he's loved you with an everlasting love. He says that I'll never leave you or forsake you. I talk a lot with my cousin Jesse throughout the week and I had a conversation with him. He's writing a discipleship program and we were talking about love and love can be expressed through intimacy, but the highest example of love isn't expressed in intimacy It's expressed in commitment. I'm committed to you. The highest level of love is expressed to us in God's commitment to us. That he'll never leave us. 
that he'll never forsake us, that he's committed to us. In the good times and in the bad times, he stays the same. Grace is consistent. That's why I said he would show a murderer the same grace that he showed a liar because grace is consistent. I honestly believe it takes the same grace to forgive anything. It takes the same grace. And when people try to make qualifications, well, yeah, I might have sinned, but I didn't do that. Well, at least I don't do that. It's still the same. It's sin. Sin is sin. You're guilty of breaking a law. But now that we're in Christ, the Scripture says that He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, nailing it to His own cross, removing it out of the way. We're not under a law, but we operate in a higher level than the law ever could because now we operate and have access to the love of God. We have access to the love of God because the love of God has been shut abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. The highest level of love is commitment. And I was telling Jess, I said, you know, so what if I fell off tomorrow? What if tomorrow I just walked away from everything? It won't happen. But what if it did? Would you still be committed to me? Because you know what's crazy? God still would be. <laughs> if I was that nasty little sheep and I just wanted to leave the 99. <laughs> Make my own way in the wilderness. <laughs> I'm a big sheep. I don't need this shepherd or this flock. You know, I've always been curious about these blueberries just outside of town. And I just tried to make my own way there. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to find me there. Why? Because he's committed to me. And I believe that he wants us to have that level of commitment to each other. Where grace just isn't the basis for our life and our experience with the Lord, but it's the basis of other people's lives and our experience with them. That they experience such an extravagant grace and commitment from us. I'm not talking about forcing yourself on people and you know you just wanna go ahead and run into that sin and I'm gonna be the bird in your ear while you're drinking at the bar telling you you shouldn't do that, no. But when you pick up the phone and call me at 2.30 in the morning, crying because you just lost everything you had, I'm going to be the one there for you when your family turns away from you. I'm going to be the one to show you compassion when you don't deserve it. Because there was a time I turned away from the Father, and He was still there for me, full of compassion, when I was in the same place you're in. So grace becomes the basis, not only for our lives, but what we extend into other people's lives. So we have this experience of grace with God, but then people get to experience grace with us through our relationship with them so that they actually get the taste of the fullness that we have inside of us because of grace himself, Jesus. That we become living witnesses to something much better because they've been sold a lie and they believed it and they're still chasing it. But like I said, once I found Christ, I stopped, I stopped looking. And you've heard me tell the story in here before that I used to deliver at a Muslim guy's gas station and I would always talk to him about Jesus. Muslims really don't like Jesus, by the way. <laughs> but when there's grace on your words, the Lord says that he makes even your enemies live at peace with you. So I come in one day and 
This man says, all you do is you come in here, you want to talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You don't want to talk about Allah and the Quran. And he's actually mad. And I said, hold on. I, I called his name. I said, hold on. I said, uh, I said, it'd be like this. I met my wife. I know that she's the one. We got married. And you're telling me that there's more women out there, that that's the stupidest thing I could have did to get married. And I said, man, I found the one. Once I found the one, I stopped looking. And that's how it is with God. Once I found Jesus, I found the one. I'm not looking anymore. Now, the person that I was looking to be with for all of my life, I'm in covenant with them. I found them. I'm not looking anymore. I'm not thirsty anymore. Jesus has quenched my thirst. So I'm not running around to different fountains trying to see if their water's better because I have the substance, the reality of the realness of living water inside of me that he himself gave me, that he gave you when you were born again. I was actually going to teach on prayer this morning. <laughs> I really was. <laughs> I'm going to touch on it just because I feel like it's significant. The way that I learned to preach was just depending upon God in my early years of ministry. So my faith works the best there. <laughs> it just works the best. Like my faith engaged with God, like just give it to me when I get up there, I'll be fine. That my faith works the best. My study time is intimate time with the Lord where I should be studying. <laughs> but like Mark and Val, when they prepare, they're so strategic and it's so beautiful the way they formulate everything and do the PowerPoints and, and I love it and I commend it. And it's because their faith just works so great in that area to hear from God during that time. And that's how my faith works right here. I'm trying to expand it to work in the way I see God using you guys because it's so beautiful. And it, it comes across so powerful. You guys are great ministers. You really are. And I don't say that cliche at all. We respect, we admire, we actually adore you guys. We count you guys worthy of double honor because you guys really do deserve it. You've labored in the word and it's manifested in this ministry. The reason this ministry is blessed is because God has good stewards over it. You know, there's a reason why me and Heather aren't the head in this ministry. <laughs> Neither would we ever want to be. We're so grateful to be part of what God is doing in your guys' life and in this ministry. And I have a part in this ministry. I do. And it's because you guys have given me a place because you recognize the anointing and the giftings of God usually before other people recognize them. I want to thank you guys for the opportunity that I have to be part of this ministry. And to call you guys friends. You guys are amazing. You really are. All right. I'm just going to read Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 9. Jesus is about to teach the disciples in prayer. It says this in Matthew chapter 6, but then it goes on. It's the same story in Luke 11. But Luke 11, the story starts off, Luke 11, 1. It says that Jesus went alone by himself to pray. And then when he had got done praying, the disciples saw him praying, and one of the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Matthew's account doesn't record that. But it's the same exact prayer by Jesus. And listen to what he says in response to one of his disciples asking him to pray. Now remember, 
Jesus said, my words are spirit and their life. So what is the life that the spirit is trying to show us in what Jesus is about to say? Most of us actually know this prayer by heart. And sometimes when we know a prayer by heart, we can just quote it religiously without actually taking in the reality of what it's saying. These are the disciples that asked Jesus to teach us to pray. And Jesus is about to give them revelation. Remember, his words are spirit and life. So what is the life that the spirit is about to show us? Because there's something he wants us to see in it. It's not a religious prayer to repeat over and over and over again. He was teaching them to pray. He wasn't teaching them what to pray. He was actually teaching them to pray. And listen to what he says. After this manner... Therefore pray, our Father, which art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. When I was reading this probably about three weeks back, it dawned on me, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And Jesus includes that they should ask the Father to lead them not into temptation. And I said, Lord, why? That doesn't make sense because God can't tempt with evil, nor is he tempted with evil. But each man's carried away and enticed by his own evil desires. Why would we be praying that you would lead us not into temptation. Because there's a temptation that looks good, but it's not God. There's a temptation that looks good, but it's not God. There's certain choices that you'll make throughout your day that look good, but they're not God. They're distractions. Are they necessarily evil? No. But are they temptations to do things your own way? Yes. And that is a problem. That's why James would say, don't say tomorrow we're going to go here or tomorrow we're going to go there. But what you should rather say, if it's the will of God. And Jesus, in his opening remarks to them, tells them to acknowledge the Father and the fact that he is holy and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, doesn't God just have his will whenever he wants it? No. Because then he would have to override our will. So when we ask God for his will to be done, we're partnering with his desires, not trying to follow our own temptations, which will lead us into evil. After Jesus says, this way you should pray. And he lists in there, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then he says, for yours is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And when we ask God for his will to be done in our lives, what's going to be in, all around, and at the end of that is Christ. Because Christ is the will of God for our lives. We're going to find peace there. We're going to find joy there. We're going to find contentment there. And when we're asking him for his will, we're also asking for his ability. There's a dual side to it because we can't work a work of God without God. <laughs> 
So when we pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how's that actually going to work? Because we become dispensers of his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is inside of you. So we become kingdom ambassadors to bring the desire of the king and his kingdom into a realm that isn't hosting that. We become stewards of a possession that we can release in a moment. You can release peace over a situation simply by saying, peace be still. Peace be still. Jesus did. He didn't only calm the minds of the apostles. He calmed the winds, the waves, and the sea. And when the disciples asked him, they said, Lord, why couldn't we cast this devil out? He said, because of your unbelief. And then the next thing he says is, for this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And my lightning fast mind said he's talking about devils. So we got to pray and fast to cast devils out. No, he wasn't. He was talking about unbelief. The kind of unbelief that they were experienced where they couldn't take their authority over the devil only comes out by prayer and fasting. <laughs> it goes back to the beginning of the message that the next season that God is calling us to is actually going to take time, energy, and effort on our part in knowing Him. It's going to take time with us spending with Him in prayer and fellowship, not religious words. Not religious words at all, but finding what he said over our life and then releasing it back to him. Because that's what he said, the word that proceeds out of my mouth, when it goes forth, it will not return unto me void. All this proceeded from God. None of it will be returned to him unless you do it. When it comes back to him, it won't return void. How's it going to come back to him? Is he waiting for an echo in the distance to bounce off the cliff and then come back to him? No. He's waiting for the people that he has entrusted to steward his word, which is alive and active in our life, to return it to him. And in the return to him, it accomplishes something in and for us. It's the power of our prayer life. We have power in this life because we've experienced the basis of grace. Now our prayers become effective because grace is the basis for prayer. We're not trying to pray in order to receive something. We've already received it because grace is the base. We've already received it. So when we pray, faith works easy because it's dependent upon grace. It's not dependent upon works. It's not dependent on if you woke up feeling holy this morning. It depends on the reality that you're clothed with the righteousness of God and right standing with the Father, that you have all grace abounding in your life. And the scripture says that if we let patience work in our life, that we'll be complete wanting nothing, but it actually means lacking nothing. If through faith and patience we can possess our souls and it's patience that actually produces the life-giving spirit of God out of us, because he's already in us. It's going to be us in cooperation with God, not looking to push in our time, which actually is a real temptation. It's a temptation to try to get ahead of God. It's a temptation to go for something good instead of something God. It is the temptation of something good and not God. 
We want God at all times, not good. That's why it's so important that we pray, your kingdom came. It's inside of me. Now let your will be done in my life. And when you ask for God's will to be done in your life, what comes with that, like I said, is His ability. Because you can't do a work of God without God working in you that which is good and pleasing in His sight. We become stewards of a divine mystery, the Scripture says. Christ in us is our hope of glory. It's beautiful. That the Father really does love us with an everlasting love. And it doesn't matter of how you wake up in the morning. It doesn't even really matter of where you are at in this point of your life. The reality, what really matters is that you see Him. And you see yourself in Him. And you see the life that He gave you coming out of you and affecting people around you. That we have the opportunity to host, to carry the presence of the kingdom of God inside of us. It's an honor and a privilege. You can't defile the Holy Spirit. There's not even a scripture for that. You defile my spirit, says the Lord. That's stupid. It's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. There's Christians that believe that, though. They believe that they can defile their spirit, but he who's joined to the Lord is one spirit. So if you're joined to the Lord and you're one spirit with the Lord, how could you defile the spirit of God? You can't. It's impossible. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your goodness. I want to thank you for this body. Lord, I thank you that you do rejoice over us with singing. And Father, I ask you that we would begin to hear the victorious words of what you're singing over us, that we're beloved, that all grace is extended towards us, that we're not old sinners saved by grace, that we become saints, and in Christ there is no sin, that you see us holy, unblameable, unreprovable in your sight, that we're the work of your hands and not the work of our own. I thank you, Father, that our trust, our hope, and our assurance is in what you did when you chose to come and humble yourself as a man and die in our place so that we could live in yours. And I thank you that we have an everlasting covenant And I thank you that grace never diminishes, that it never fails, that it only intensifies as we continue to grow in it. We thank you for the revelation of sonship that you've given us. We thank you that you have counted us able to steward such things because you are the one working in us to even desire and given us the ability to do it. So we just glorify you on this day. We ask you that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.